Hello, guys. Welcome to my show. My guest today is Eric Rhodes. Uh, Eric is a very busy man. He made my head spin listing all his businesses that uh, help artists succeed in art. Eric Rhodes is the chairman and CEO of Streamline Publishing, which publishes art magazines, digital media brands and videos, and holds conferences for the art and broadcasting industries. His publications include uh, Plain Air, Outdoor Painter, Fine Art Connoisseur, Plain Air Today, and Fine Art Today. Eric is also the creator of the Art Marketing Bootcamp video series. Eric Rhodes also organizes yearly conferences such as Figurative Art Convention, Plain Air Convention. Um, he also works on trips and retreats uh, for artists and art collectors. Eric also distributes art instruction videos and books that include Streamline Art Video and uh, Creative Catalyst and Lily Art Video. Eric Rhodes is a businessman and an artist, and today he is going to share his experiences and advice for artists, art collectors, and anyone who really uh, wants to learn about the business of art and uh, how to become uh, successful in the arts. I am super excited to introduce the art publisher, Eric Rhodes, to all of you today. It's awesome. I'm in Austin today, yes. Okay, cool. Well, welcome to my show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But, uh, how do you describe yourself? Okay. Hi, I'm Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wear a lot of different hats. I, I describe myself as a publisher in two industries. I'm in the art industry, uh, and I don't really like the word industry because it doesn't really apply there. I am also in the radio and television industry. So I run uh, this division uh, of our business, which is art. And I'm an artist who uh, basically creates the things that I would want as an artist. Um, Somebody recently said you're like the Walt Disney of art because you've created Disneyland, right? And, and the idea is that, uh, and I'm a little embarrassed by that, but the idea is that um, if somebody wants to learn art, uh, whether they're a, a beginner who doesn't believe that they have the talent or whether they're someone who wants to get to the next level in almost any type of art. Now, I, I say almost because I don't do anything in the abstract, non-representational areas. Uh, but uh, we do do a lot of things that would be, you know, very loose and very free and very impressionistic. But, but the whole idea here is when I, when I, was, when I first learned to paint, um, I got lucky because I learned from a guy who, who uh, knew academic painting. And I do a little bit of everything. But um, I find that people get frustrated very easily when they're learning to paint. They have this mistaken impression that you should have natural talent. And so they give up too soon because they feel like they don't have natural talent. And, and I really want to change things with the idea that anybody can learn to paint. Uh, it's process and, and to help people overcome this, this frustration and learning. And I want to help them make better progress faster. So my whole goal is to develop tools and techniques. Um, I'm working on a, a program uh, for school teachers and for, for art students in high schools and elementary schools. I'm working on a program to teach art marketing to students who go to ateliers who uh, come out and they have this great training, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to make a living. The whole goal of all of this is to make life better for artists and to overcome this ridiculous myth that artists are starving. I put out a piece the other day um, that was intended to help people understand that your kid can be successful as an artist. They can make a good living, and, and they can make a great living. They can make more than you make uh, in, in many cases uh, if they learn and study and know the, the tools and techniques uh, that relate to the art business side of things. It's a, 
a big project. It's going to take me a couple more years to get it done. But ultimately, I want to have something so that the ateliers have a handoff program and they can say, here, now you've got to take this too, because otherwise you're going to get out there. And unless you're just going to paint as a hobbyist, mm-hmm. um, uh, you're going to get out there and you're actually going to know how to succeed and and not have to struggle. I mean, we all have to struggle when we start a business, but not have to struggle forever. Yeah, that's a very uh, good idea. I I really love that. Because a lot of times, you know, when I teach and uh, teenagers come to me and uh, their parents are concerned. Well, can you tell me about your education and how it helped you to achieve your goals? Or maybe it didn't help you, I don't know. Well, just tell me about your experience. Well, uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, is not a big fan of college. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm not a big fan of college. I did not go to a, through a cr- traditional degree program or anything like that. I did go to Harvard. I did go to Notre Dame. I did go to some other schools, but I went a- in uh, executive development programs. Not, I don't have a degree from any, any place. As a matter of fact, I did not go to college. When I was uh, college age, I had fallen in love with radio and wanted to be a radio disc jockey and play rock and roll music. And um, so I got a job when I was 17 years old, right out of high school, working for a top radio station in in Miami, Florida. And so I looked at the the equation and I said, you know, my friends, this is back in the, you know, 70, mid 70s. Mm-hmm. I looked at my friends and I thought they're going to go to four years of school. Then they're going to get their first job and they're going to work for five or 10 years until they make, you know, 35 or $40,000 a year at the time. I, you know, I was 17 and I had a, I was making 35 or $40,000, you know, $40,000 then is the equivalent of $200,000 today. And because of inflation. And, and I looked at that and I said, you know, I'm doing what I love. I want to do this. And so I didn't, I didn't go to school. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't, did you I, just take classes in those schools? Like how how did it go? Well, I did. I did not go to college. I uh, I became. Uh, I did my radio career. I was entrepreneurial. I started businesses on the side. For instance, okay. I uh, when I was a radio DJ, I, I did weddings uh, and portraits as a photographer, mostly weddings. Mm-hmm. I had a, a DJ business where I played played music at events, weddings, and high schools and things. And and so I didn't do that. But later, as I I got into business, I realized there were a lot of essential concepts that I did not understand. I didn't have the foundations. And so I started doing extra, what they would call executive learning. And that's when I went to Harvard. That's when I went to Notre Dame. But those were not, no degree required to get into those programs. And they were typically you know, a couple of weeks. Uh, and they were helpful that, you know, and I, of course, I met a lot of people. So mm-hmm. I think that um, I, I don't have regrets not going to college. I do think that I would have had some foundational information going in if I had done it. But, you know, my goal was to do what I loved and to be happy doing what I love. And I didn't want to follow immediately in my father's footsteps, uh, my dad being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to run his businesses. I didn't have any interest in what he did at the time. But uh, I do? just wanted to do my own thing. And so what did he do? Like you, uh, he, you said he was a businessman. Yeah, he still is. He's 94 and he's still working 15-hour <laughs> days. You know, you're, when you're doing what you love and you're doing something exciting, it keeps, you, keeps your brain healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, he did all, he, he started lots of businesses, a lot of things in metals and, and pots and pans and, and um, kitchen equipment and a lot of things like that. Okay. So you kind of picked it up from him, I'm guessing. Well, I got my entrepreneurial skills uh, by kind of listening in. I, I don't know that I learned a lot of practical technique, but the one thing that I learned was, uh, it eliminated a lot of the fear, right? So I, I never saw my dad go through the struggles. Uh, he didn't share that with us. I didn't, you know, I knew much later 
you know, those moments when he had his moments where he almost didn't make it or, you know, had problems that, you know, were terrible problems that he had to deal with. But I didn't know about any of that stuff, typically, or at least I don't remember it. But I remember him, you know, he would start a business and, and next thing you know, he had done something with it. And so I don't th- I think the one advantage that I had was the lack of fear. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, you know, if, if, if I have an idea, I'll, I sit in the morning, every morning and drink my coffee and I think about my goals and I think about, you know, uh, uh, what I'm grateful for and I have a routine, but but I also am always thinking about new ideas and, and new things. And so the, the key for me has been um, to take action, to take immediate action. Now, I don't start every idea that I have. I have what I call my, my basket, and I put everything into my basket, and I revisit it uh, every six months. And so, you know, six months into it, I look at it, I go, yeah, that wasn't a great idea. But I'll look at another one and go, oh, yeah, we still need to do that one. And then I'll pull it out of the basket. I'll make it a goal. And then I'll focus on on that thing. Uh, We have a whole system in place that we use uh, for our goals and how we set goals and how we work as as a business. But ultimately, for me, it's about doing things that are either going to change lives or change the world. Uh, Money has to be secondary. This is something that I I didn't understand in the beginning. Uh, I used to be, when I was younger, I used to think of all, it was all about making money. And, and I tried really hard to make money and I really never made much money. And, uh, and I struggled and I went through lots of years of repeating the same year with, you know, making no money year after year after year. And, and finally, when I let go of making money and said, you know what, I don't care about making money anymore. I care about changing people's lives and being generous to help other people. That's all of a sudden when things started happening and I started making some money. So I, I never understood that before. People had told me, but I didn't believe it. And, <laughs> and, you see, and, and the reason that's important is because everybody has to have a purpose. I'm not a hard-handed uh, micromanaging kind of business owner. Uh, I have a lot of, I have 50, 55 employees. I, they never hear from me. Uh, I maybe twice a year, I'll send out a note to everybody always at Christmas time, usually something at Thanksgiving. But what, what we do is we set our goals. We tell people, we break them into everybody's department. Here's what your goals are. Here's what we expect of you. Go do it. And, you know, we monitor, but we don't stay on top of it. So I'm not on top of people all the time. And I think the idea of doing what you love and, and being happy and having fun and, and uh, looking for something that changes the world. First off, we give all of our employees uh, a, a piece of our business every year as um, incentive. Uh, we also give uh, a pretty significant percentage to a charity. And the thing that my thing is homelessness. I hate homelessness. I hate to see anybody be homeless. So we found a homeless charity that helps people, helps them get, get housed and helps them get on their feet and stuff like that. So, and they have the, they have a village where they build these houses. And so we have actually built several houses for these people. They have a village of these houses. They can go live there for free as long as they're working. And so they get- what town? In, In Austin? In Austin, it's called it's called uh, uh, City First Village, but mm-hmm. also we have food trucks that go out and feed homeless in seven or ten different towns. We have a purpose, and the and our purpose is is that we're using we're using our money to help our employees. We're using our money to help the homeless, and we're using our business to help in in this particular discussion to help people who want to learn art, and mm-hmm. so. We educate people, we inspire people, we inform them, uh, we give them things to do, we give them training. You know, we have a lot of different approaches to it. So how did you uh, decide on becoming a publisher? Like when did you start uh, your publishing business, like art magazines? And why did you decide to do it? Well, everything was accidental. Um, First off, I'll I'll tell you a quick story. 
I, I used to paint with my mom when I was a kid. I'd sit at the table and we would paint with acrylic paints. And I liked it. I enjoyed that. I think it was fun time with my mom. And then, of course, life got in the way and I went to school and then had life and got married and, and business today. and everything else. <laughs> and, I did, and I didn't paint. And um, one day my wife w- went to the uh, an appointment and I was waiting in the car and I was kind of bored. There was an art store. It was a Jerry's Artorama store in West Palm Beach. And so I wandered into it and... Uh, I just started looking around and I, you know, I kind of liked that stuff. And, and so I thought, well, I think I'll, I'll, I think I'll do what I used to do with my mom. So I bought a set of acrylic paints and I bought a little thing to set on the table to hold the panels and bought some panels and, you know, brushes and stuff. And, you know, probably spent a couple hundred bucks and, and I, I got home and I started painting and, and it was a disaster because I of course didn't know what I was doing you know, my paint was lumpy. And I, anyway, I remember I was copying a photograph out of a magazine. And I couldn't, I couldn't get it to translate in, uh, into an image, right? I mean, I first off, my drawing was horrible. My painting was horrible. I was really frustrated. And I shared that frustration with my wife. So she bought me a birthday present of a, a art lessons at the Armory Arts Center. And I get into this class, uh, and the guy says, well, just express yourself. Just yeah. throw the paint <laughs> on yeah. the palette and just, yeah. you know, feel good and use your hands if you want to. And, right. and, I, and I, I, I was trying it and I just couldn't get into it. And, and I said to him, I said, you know, I kind of want to learn how to paint like a bottle or a flower or something. Mm-hmm. And can you teach me that? And he says, oh, nobody does that anymore. He said, that's old school. That's been done. We don't do what's been done. And I said, but that's what I want to do. And he says, uh, you're in the wrong place. So I quit the class. And he didn't tell me, uh, as he said, you, you can't even learn that anywhere. Well, so I left discouraged, went home, put all my paints in, in the closet. And, uh, and, and I didn't paint for about a year. And uh, so one day I had a meeting in Miami. And I went to this meeting and uh, went to lunch with this guy. And uh, he dropped me off at my car and took off. I realized that my keys had fallen out of my pocket and they were in his car. I had no way to reach him. He was running off to the airport. I called a taxi cab. I thought, oh, I'll get another set of keys at home, right? So I I called a cab. I get in a cab with this guy. I'm in the cab ride for about an hour and a half. And so I was bored. I struck up a conversation with the guy and I, he said, you know, he was an artist. I said, Oh, let me tell you my story. So I told him all that. And he says, Oh, well, you, you've got to get the right kind of training. I said, well, I'm afraid if I, you know, I get the wrong training, it's going to ruin me. And he said, well, there's a guy in West Palm beach. His name is Jack Jackson. He is in the lineage of Jerome. I didn't know who Jerome was at the time. (laughs) And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, he studied under this person who studied under this person who studied under Jerome. And it turned out that he had studied in Florence under Signorita Simi, uh, who studied under her father, Frederico, who studied under Jerome. And, uh, and then he studied under Ives Gamble, and he studied under uh, Frank Riley. So I waited a year because I was intimidated by that. And I remember uh, finding out about the class, and, and so I, I pulled up to the parking lot, and I got in the car and then I got out of the car and I got in the car and I got out of the car. My palms were sweating. My palms sweat just thinking about it. And I, uh, so I walk up to the class and I'm totally intimidated and I walk in and I see that there are about maybe 10 or 12 students in the class and they're all doing copies of old master paintings and they're all really good. Um, And I looked around I observed, I thought, I can't do this. So I turned around and I walked out. And I was like, uh, no way can I do that. And so fortunately, the guy saw me walk out and he came and got me. He said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I want to learn, but I, I can't do this. He said, yeah, you can. He said, none of these people could do it. He said, if you give me 18 months, I can have you doing work like that. And I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think this is for me. He says, come here, let me just show you something. And so he he said, I want to show you how to copy a photograph. So he laid down a photograph, laid down some tissue paper, and showed me how to make a grid 
And he said, now I want you to do this. And we did a diagonal grid. He said, then when you do that, I want you to trace the outlines. And then when I did that, he said, now we're going to transfer it over to a canvas. And then he said, now we're going to start painting it. And what he did, it was magical because he pulled me in. He, he knew that I needed to be pulled in. I didn't know it. And so that's all I needed. And then he encouraged me and it got me in the class. And, you know, the first, the first painting was, I still have the first painting. It turned out really good, but it was uh, the first painting of an old master copy was painful. But we were doing copies of Bouguereau, which I didn't even know Bouguereau existed at the time. And so um, anyway, that, that was the moment that changed my life because I had gone on a business trip after studying with him for about two years. I was on a business trip and I went to San Francisco and I went to the uh, Palace of Fine Arts and they had a Bouguereau painting and I stood in front of that painting and I wept. I stood there because when I saw the veins under the skin and I saw the depth and quality of that painting and now knowing what I went through to create, uh, you know, a horrible copy, yeah. how this, how this man uh, could possibly get to a skill level like that and accomplish, like, I just had tears streaming down my, yeah, my that's face. That's what I feel when yeah. I look at good art, at excellent so art. It, uh, and, and, yeah. and it still happens to me. And, and, it, and so I, I said to myself at that moment, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I went back, I kept studying, and, but I was also an entrepreneur. I, I, um, I was in the publishing business. I had a radio magazine. I still have it. And so then we moved to San Francisco because I started a dot-com uh, in internet radio. And we're out there and I'm still painting and my wife got pregnant with triplets and she said, you got to get the smell of the paint out of the house. I can't stand it. So I went to the garage and she said, that doesn't work either. So I took my studio easel and all my stuff and I took it out to the golf course and I started painting outside. I didn't know what plein air painting was, but that's how I started plein air magazine. Uh, I eventually discovered there were some people plein air painting, went to a couple workshops and things. There weren't many events. And so I thought, well, this must be a movement. So I started Plein Air Magazine and I was wrong. It wasn't a movement. I ran it for either two or three years and I couldn't, couldn't make enough money. I was losing money. And my, my bookkeeper came to me and said, look, you're going to be out of business completely if you don't get rid of this magazine. So I thought, well, maybe if I change to my other passion, because I had developed this passion for academic realism and uh, I remember having subscription to a magazine called Realism Journal, which no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And I never could understand why they couldn't succeed um, because I loved that. And I wanted to really make a magazine to push the academic side. So I launched Fine Art Connoisseur. And um, that was 10 years ago, I think, 14 years ago. I don't remember what it was. Yeah, 14 years ago, I think. And then um, eventually... I wanted to bring back Plein Air. So when we got a little more meat on our bones, I brought back Plein Air magazine. This time I was a little smarter about it and, and the market was ready. And so anyway, that's kind of how it all happened. It was, it was all very accidental. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to artists uh, who, who want to succeed in the business of art? I, I think the, the first thing is, um, a lot of artists are artists because they don't want to do what everybody else does. You know, we think differently. We, uh, we tend to be more free thinkers. We tend to be uh, more artistic, more creative. And the idea of going to work in a job job, you know, as a bookkeeper or an accountant or a salesperson or something else is really a turnoff to most of us. And, and, and it probably would have been a turnoff to me, except I grew up around it. And, you know, and we don't want to sell out to the man. And so I think we have this attitude that anything that is about business or marketing is selling out or is evil. And there's nothing further from the truth. I mean, you could sell out. I don't recommend it. But if you, you, I think you need to consider adopting an attitude that if you want to make a living as an artist, you need to develop some muscles. 
So uh, the, w- the way I look at it, my, my dad told me years and years ago, he said, look, when you're running a business, you wear a lot of different hats, right? One minute you're wearing an accounting hat, another minute you're wearing a marketing hat, another minute you're wearing a manufacturing hat, another minute you're wearing a shipping hat, you know? And we as artists, if we're in business, you know, we have to learn how to ship things. We have to learn how to keep track of the money. We have to learn how to get people to buy it. And the core of it all, though, is none of that happens without marketing. And so I've spent uh, a lot of time creating things for for people for marketing. Like I've got a website called artmarketing.com, which has got lots of free articles. I've got a book on, on art marketing. I've got uh, videos on marketing. I'm working on this course. And nothing happens until you market something that, you know, there's this fallacy of getting discovered. You know, it's like there's an old Hollywood story about Lana Turner who was sitting in a, in a, uh, a, a coffee shop or something and a, and a director discovered her. Well, first off, it's a made up story. It's a PR story. It never was true. The people who make it in Hollywood are not the people who get lucky, typically. It's the people who work it. You got to work it. Well, the people who succeed as artists are the people who learn how to work it. You have to know how to get yourself exposed. You have to be willing to talk about yourself. You have to be willing to, to market yourself and put yourself out there. And so I think the advice I would say, first off, is embrace the idea that being in business is not a bad thing. And, and you get to set your own rules. You get to set your boundaries. You don't have to do anything uh, that you would be compromising yourself. But you do have to be willing to do, to do things that market yourself. Now, I know, like you do, I know lots and lots of artists. I know artists... Uh, uh, there are artists in, in my friendships who are multimillionaires, multimillionaires. Uh, you, some of them are household names and some of them you've never heard of, but they're really good at marketing themselves. And there are people that I would, I could tell you names of, I won't because it wouldn't be fair to them, but that I've had discussions with, no one ever knows their marketing, but they're really good marketers. And the one thing that they have in common is they never stop marketing. Now, yeah, but have, what do they do exactly? Is it the mail list? Is it talking to people a lot? Is it um, well, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of things, and and I'll get into that in a second. But the the thing that they, the first thing is, they are always marketing. Now, I have a couple of friends and acquaintances who are, you know, in their uh, late eighties or early nineties who are considered legends. And they're still marketing. It doesn't appear to people that they're marketing, but they're doing books, they're doing shows, they're doing videos, they're doing things that are putting themselves out there. Mm-hmm. And so there's not ever a single thing. Let me give you an example. Imagine that this is a pillar, right? And this is the, the top, the Parthenon. And the Parthenon has multiple pillars, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if your business or your marketing is relying on a single pillar and a car backs into that pillar and knocks it down, your business comes down. But if you have at least three pillars, if you have two pillars, you have one here and one here and the car knocks it down, you're still going to go down. But if you have three pillars and one gets knocked down, your business is still there. And we have to have multiple pillars in our, in our art business. And so, uh, Multiple pillars would be what I call tactics. Uh, There's a difference between strategy and tactics. A strategy is essentially what you're going to do in terms of, you know, how you're going to grow your business and what your overall plan is. Your tactics are the things you do to accomplish that plan. So a tactic might be a mail list, uh, might be an email list, it might be uh, social media, it might be advertising, it might be, you know, uh, shows, it might be books, it might be videos, you know. So the goal is to have multiple pillars. Really good marketers have multiple pillars. And the mistake that people are making today, and it's really crushing a lot of people, because there's this uh, mistaken belief 
that all we have to do is get on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or, or you know, whatever happens to be the hot uh, social media at the moment. All we have to do is get on there and talk about our art and we're going to sell plenty of art. Now, there are people who do do it and there are people who succeed doing it. But the, the thing you got to be a little bit sensitive to, first off, uh, it's a single pillar. So um, I remember a story, a friend of mine uh, back in 2018, uh, he was in three art galleries. Those were three pillars for him, right? Mm-hmm. And it, because the economy crashed, and uh, not 2018, tw- 2008, but because the economy crashed, all three galleries went out of business at one time. He lost a hundred percent of his income because all three galleries went away. Now, if he'd have had five galleries, he might've had a, you know, a better opportunity. I know artists that have one gallery that lost their one gallery and they lost their income. See, I don't ever want to put my income or your income at risk by a single thing. I, I tell a story about a friend of mine, Dan, who uh, used to be in the infomercial world. And, you know, there used to be these hour-long shows where they would pretend they'd have a live audience and they, you know, they'd sell knives or something. And, <laughs> and it was a one-hour show about, about that. And, and they made, literally were making billions of dollars. And they had all their, all their marketing on this because they were making so much money on it. And then one day the government passed a law that made those illegal. One day, they went from billions of dollars to zero. And so what happens if one day um, Facebook is no longer hot or Instagram is no longer hot? MySpace was like the hottest thing in the world. Everybody was on at one minute and then one minute every, everybody left. You know, because of the things that happened in politics um, recently, uh, millions, like 30 or 40 million people left Twitter. Uh, and and if I were advertising on Twitter, that's 30 or 40 million people that I might not be reaching all of a sudden. And, and or what if the government decided to go in and shut down Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or something for some odd reason? You, you know, TikTok is really hot and they've been talking about shutting it down because of the, you know, the connection to China. So, I mean, if, if, if you were if you were a star on TikTok and you had 10, I know an artist who's got 10, 10 million followers on TikTok. He's making $30,000, $40,000 a month uh, on his, between his TikTok and his Instagram strategy. And if one or both of those gets yanked out, he goes from $40,000 a month to zero. And sometimes it's a shift to the next best thing or something cool and then you got to start all over again. So it's best to have multiple pillars. I'm thinking sense? of it as a diversification of income. It, it absolutely is. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's diversified in a, in a lot of ways. And I tell artists that you need to have um, two strategies. You need a local strategy and you need a national strategy. Mm-hmm. Every artist, <clears throat> and I don't want to should on anybody, but every, every artist in theory should uh, think about, okay, how can I be a local superstar? And, you know, I'm in Austin, Texas. How can I be well-known in Austin, Texas? And what should I do to make sure I take advantage of all the tourist traffic coming to Austin? How do I get my work seen? How do I get into a gallery? You know, all those things. How do I get on local media, TV, radio, web, uh, you know, et cetera, so that I become a local uh, celebrity? And some of them have doubled, tripled their income just by focusing on the local market. But the problem is, let's say I lived in Detroit five years ago. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Detroit just crashes and there's no business locally. And I remember when I was growing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the number one employer was uh, International Harvester. And one day they fired everybody and closed the business. And there were tens of thousands of people without jobs. So that town crashed. I'm sure if there was an art gallery in that town at the time, it wasn't selling any more art. And so if you have, uh, if you have a local strategy, the next step is then to think about a regional strategy. A regional strategy is, okay, I'm in Austin, but what's the region? Texas. So if Austin goes bad, maybe Houston doesn't or Dallas doesn't. And then the next step beyond that is a national strategy. And that is 
to be in nationally known art galleries. And the way I, I say it is that you go for communities that are hot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are places that everybody on the West Coast goes on vacation, right? Uh, Monterey, um, Hawaii, Scottsdale. There are places everybody in the East Coast goes on vacation, you know, Florida, et cetera. So think about, okay, where are people going to go on vacation? Because people tend to buy when they're on vacation. When people are decorating their house, where are the wealthy people going to be that can afford an expensive painting? Well, um, you know, the Hamptons or, uh, you know, the city, uh, New York City or whatever. So having a, a national strategy and then I like to have a spread across a minimum of three galleries. I know going too deep, you can't produce enough work for them. Um, I'm in three. And that way, if I just got a call from one of my galleries, they said, okay, sometime in the next year, we're going to retire. And so you're not going to be in the gallery sometime in the next year. And so um, all, now I got to find a third gallery, and uh, you know, because that one will eventually go away. And so you, you want to have a balance so that you've got, you know, a little bit of security. And then on top of that, what you want to do is be, uh, un, you know, track what's going on in the world. Because, you know, one minute uh, Detroit's hot, the next minute it's not. So if Detroit all of a sudden isn't hot, you, you may want to keep that gallery, but you might say maybe it's time to add another one in another place that is hot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I I want to talk about art collecting. Uh, I have a few questions about that. Well, okay. first, uh, first of all, um, who's your favorite contemporary artist and why? Like based on merit, of course. Well, I, uh, I'm not so sure I want to answer that question. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, you know, it's like my wife asking me which of my children is favorite. I, I, the problem that I have is that first off, a lot of these people are my customers, and uh, and, and I might I might offend somebody. I will say this that um, I, I I have been public about a couple of things. So first off, when I about three years ago, four years ago, I realized I was not making enough progress as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my art wasn't selling very well. Uh, it, it was not as, I knew in my heart it wasn't as good as it could be. And it never is, by the way. Um, and I said to myself, okay, here's my problem. I'm a busy guy. I'm a business guy. I don't have a lot of time. I, if I could spend eight hours a day for two or three years on my art, I could get really good in two or three years. Um, because I've got the good basic foundational stuff. So I said, all right, what I got to do is I got to identify what do I really want to focus on? So I said to myself, I want to get really, really good at landscape painting and I really, at plein air landscape painting. And I want to get really, really good at figure painting or portrait painting. So I thought about, okay, who do I like a lot? Who would, who, who do I most want to emulate? Mm-hmm. And so I picked Joseph McGurl uh, as the landscape. And I picked two artists um, for uh, the, the portrait. And one of them I won't mention the name of, uh, but I wasn't able to study under him because I couldn't get the circumstances. But what I did is I just said, okay, I'm going to save my money for a year and I'm going to uh, hire this person for a, a week to devote a week to me. And so I did that with Joe McGurl, and then I did that with Joshua LaRock. Mm-hmm. And so they're both, they're both uh, two of my favorite artists, but I have so, so many other favorite artists. And, you know, I love, uh, I love so many different styles and um, so many different things. And, and, and you know, I, I produce videos for these artists. You know, I produce videos for Cesar Santos and for, for Juliet Aristides and, and uh uh, Daniel Graves and you know all these great masters yeah. and so you can understand why I can't uh, yeah I say, but, but I can't I can tell you this that in in a lot of ways they're all my favorites mm-hmm. I, I you know if you look around my my studio my work uh, is all over the map right because I do classically academic style portraiture mm-hmm. sometimes and sometimes I do you know like behind me 
you can see there's a portrait up there that I've done uh, uh, that okay. it, it's, you can't, can't see it really great. But right next to it is a Russian style portrait that's very loose and very Russian like. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that I, I want to be, uh, I want to be able to paint what I love when I love it. And, and so um, no favorites. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, I'm assuming you have your own art collection. We, I think most of us artists have our own collections. Tell me more like how you display it, uh, what you plan to do with it, and maybe uh, what mistakes art collectors do. Well, let's take those one at a time. Um, I, I have a very significant collection of probably over 500 paintings. Um, I rotate them in and out. Uh, my wife's taste and my taste are not necessarily the same, and she gets to win that battle most of the time. <laughs> so we put a <clears throat> we had to put a new floor in the house, uh, I, and I had it hung salon style. You know, we had a lot of paintings in the house, and when uh, when the new floor came in, then some new furniture came in, and then some. You know, she picked the paintings that came in, and it's more very very sparse. Um, you know, which is nice, refreshing. And she came into my office. I had them salon style in my office. She came in and she said, this is too cluttered. So she took everything down and I, you know, I've got a few pieces hanging up and I actually am happier that way. I just, because I just feel a little less cluttery, but I would like to have a big wall somewhere that, and I do. And my collection is a variety, but it's mostly landscapes. Um, I have not got as many of the figure pieces that I want uh, typically because they're more expensive and I've got three kids to put through college. Um, and I got a lot of the landscape paintings because a lot of, uh, a lot of artists who come to my events have gifted me paintings. Uh, I, you know, I've got some others that people have gifted me as well. The, uh, I have a collection of portraits that have been done about me uh, from every great living master alive or pretty much everyone uh and now three that are deceased nelson shanks uh daniel green and uh timothy teese wow. and, and uh but i have 26 i think 26 or 28 portraits uh, from you know those people you know stephen assail richard schmid um uh, you, you name it somebody suggested we try to do a show uh, maybe at the national uh portrait gallery because what's unique about it is first off is it documents how um, 30 different artists interpreted the same subject. Uh, it documents mm -hmm. uh, at, uh, an individual from age 50 up through current, current age 66. Uh, and you know, so there, there may be something to that. I don't know. It's a little bit weird, uh, but they all hang salon style in my office which is a little weird when somebody comes in for an interview because they're like, this guy's got a really big ego. <laughs> so now, the, what was the question about the collectors? What do I recommend well, for collectors? Uh, maybe um, what advice you could give to collectors? Maybe, uh, um, you know, one mistake they, that all collectors make? The first thing is buy what you love. Don't buy it for the purpose of making money or an investment. Now, there are people who do that. Uh, there are a lot of people who do it, but they know what they're doing, and chances are you don't. And just because somebody will tell you something will go up in value isn't true. And just because the artist dies, it doesn't necessarily mean that artist will go up in value. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary of that in some cases. So you've got to buy what you love and what you're willing to live with. Over time, as you become educated, as you start reading things like, you know, like this, um, you'll start, your taste will change. And I have paintings that I bought 30 years ago that I really can't even tolerate now, you know, and they're in a box <laughs> hanging in a garage. And, and, but, you know, there are some people who will see them and go, I love that painting. And just like I did when I first saw it. So our, our taste is going to change and uh, mold over time. And we also will sometimes get exposed to a particular trend that we fall in love with. So collect what you love, know that your taste is going to change, and don't be afraid to, you know, to say, okay, well, 
I don't love this painting anymore. And even if you paid a lot of money, I went to a collector's house in California and he had, he had this fabulous collection of 19th century Dutch paintings, uh, which is, I went to do an article on. And uh, when I got into the house, half the house was filled with 19th century Dutch and the other was with 1980s modern abstract kind of brown colored paintings. And they were all by this one particular famous artist at the time. And I said, what's the story behind those? Because I love all art. And he said, well, I, you know, he says, I'm a doctor. I made a lot of money. He said, I got enamored with this artist. He said, what you see on the walls there is an accumulated million dollars worth of paintings. He said, I couldn't sell all of them combined for $10,000 today. And he said, and I don't love them anymore. I fell out of love with them when I discovered this other thing. He says, but you know, I've got a million dollars into this. He says, I just, I, I feel obligated to hang them. And I, I, and I understand that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you stop falling, if you fall out of love with something, then you got to decide what to do with it. I don't want to be reminded of, of mistakes I've made. Um, you know, so I would take it out of the house. And most importantly, if you find uh, some artists that you love, collect those artists. And I like to have some variety, but I also like to have several pieces from a particular artist. You know, there's somebody that you're going to resonate with. You like their story, you like their art, and you want to support them. Artists need patrons. All throughout art history, there have been art patrons. A patron is someone who says, you know, I like this artist and I'm going to buy their work. Or I'm going to commission that I like their style. I'm going to commission them to paint a picture of my house or my favorite view from vacation. Artists need patrons. You know, we're, we're in a world where everything's changing. Everything changed in, in 2008. You know, it was a bad economy plus uh, a move towards the internet. And now we're kind of at a place where everything's changing again. COVID has hurt a lot of art galleries. Uh, a lot of people are, are buying um, uh, through art galleries, but also a lot of people are buying direct. Art galleries are selling more online. And so all of this is going to affect how things are. I think find an art dealer that you love and trust because, you know, there are a lot of people who want to say art dealers will go away and some will, but there's nothing as good as having a, a trusted curator. Uh, uh, I know art collectors who have curators that they hire Mm -hmm. um, like Vern Swanson is a great curator or Jean Stern is a great curator, curator and people will hire them and say, help me build my collection, help me find the right paintings. And you still want to find what you love, but they'll help you find the good stuff because, you know, Monet painted good paintings, but he also painted bad paintings. And though there are a lot of people who will say, well, Hey, I own a Monet, uh, an expert will look at that and say, that's a piece of garbage. That's a horrible painting. I mean, every artist has done bad paintings. And, uh, but also a good curator will keep you from buying a fraud because there's a lot of frauds out there. I went to an art show. I know a little bit about art. And I went to an art show on a particular historic artist. And I spotted five or six frauds in that art show. And I was sickened. And, you know, I wanted to call the police. I didn't. Uh, but um, I, I just think that, you know, you got to be careful. There are frauds out there. I mean, there's great stories about frauds and how that's been done. And, you know, it's, it's real easy to get, get stuck with a fraud. I had a, I had a guy call me one time and said, I've got a bunch of paintings, historic paintings. I want you to come see them. And uh, he's, I said, why? He says, well, I, you know, I, it's time for me to sell them and I need some help and some advice. And so I flew up to his place. And it turns out it was, you know, I got flew up there, got the rental car. It turns out it was in a ghetto and, you know, he had all these paintings under his bed and pulled them out. Uh, he didn't even show me his apartment originally because he had, didn't want me to know where it was. I quickly realized that he was fencing stolen paintings. So I got pictures of all of them and got all the information and then said I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. And then I called the FBI and I turned it over to them. I don't want to be associated with anything like that. But, I, you know, anything any of us can do to stop that from happening. Those were real paintings mm -hmm. by very famous artists. They were not frauds, but they were stolen. Wow. So, you know, there's a lot of that. And there's a thing called the Art Theft Register. And if you're buying something, you can go there and 
look at that and poke around and see if you, you get a painting that has been stolen. You don't want that because you're going to have to give it up and you'll spend money for it and you won't get your money back. All right. Good answer. Uh, one last question for you about contemporary art scene and where do you see art uh, moving forward? Like where um, is it going to be in 10 years? Do you think that realism is going to take it um, uh, or you think it's going to stay on the sidelines? That's a big question. First off, I'm not smart enough or good enough to know what's going to happen in, in one year, let alone 10 years. There is this uh, push, this push towards <clears throat> the acceptance of realism uh, from those of us who do it. Uh, one of the reasons I started the Figurative Art Convention and Expo, the FACE Conference, is because I wanted to get the community together and I want us to grow together and to learn the techniques together and to get better together. And so we can collaborate and grow because that that's what made the plein air movement grow. When I started the plein air convention, the plein air movement just blossomed. I mean, they're, you know, it's massive. There's this sense of one day we will replace the modern art movement and we'll be the darlings of the art world. Um, you don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. And the reason you don't want that to happen is because if you become the darlings of the art world, replacing abstract expressionism, for instance, um, you cannot produce enough quality art to be able to make to, to be able to make those dealers happy. You know, one one of the reasons there's stories. I don't know if any of them are true, but there are stories about you know the dealers started realizing that there was not enough good academic quality work or high quality or historic work available. So they started supporting artists doing these other things because they could, you know, nobody knew if it was good or bad and they could whip it out and then they could just get a lot of inventory. You know, some of these artists who are very well known, very famous have workshops with 30, 40, 50 people cranking out paintings. I don't think you want to become that. I think what you really want is you want to become appreciated for what you have and I think you want to get a fair price. Now, I do think that uh, th this could go either direction. If we end up as a world of lone wolves, everybody trying to do their own thing by themselves and not collaborating with others, we're not going to make it. If we get together, uh, we collaborate, we get to know each other, we work towards a common goal, uh, we we use a, 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 a system to try, to try and expose it to more people, then that's going to work. And I am driven to do that. And I believe, and I, I hope I'm right, I'm, I believe that in, if, if, if you're an artist who's 30 years old today, I believe your paintings are going to be selling for a million dollars or $2 million by the time you're 50. Uh, because I think that what's happening is that people are realizing that quality matters. Now, I'm, I don't think anything replaces anything. What's beautiful about the internet today and the social media today that didn't occur 20 years ago really is that everybody can see something and fall in love with something. And as a result, there's a huge trend. We have a, an Instagram page, which is, you know, it's got over 100,000 followers it's called realism.today. And, and it's just, you know, all these people are there because they've become a community. You know, they like the idea of sharing work that they all love. And, and you're seeing artists who have, you know, a million followers because all of us love that. That's going to spread the work. Mm -hmm. And the realism uh, community is, you know, there's, there's a few people like Jacob Collins and Daniel Graves and, mm -hmm. and others who, who are, you know, in their fifties uh, and early sixties. Uh, and they are ki kind of considered the masters of that movement now. And those guys are going to be selling for 10, 20, 30, $40 million, uh, maybe, maybe more just like a Rothko or something would, but a lot of that is going to be dependent on education every generation tends to reject the generation ahead of them or two generations ahead of them. The modern art movement was embraced by the generation of my grandparents and my parents. 
the real, and, and by the way, there's still a lot of people embracing the, the modern art movement. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not being critical. Uh, but there are, I have friends who are entrepreneurs who are billionaires that are 35 years old or 30 years old who are getting exposed to this kind of work because I'm helping them. I'm teaching them. Mm -hmm. uh, they're reading our magazine and they're, they're the people who are going to be paying 10, $20 million or, or a million dollars for a painting. And the, see, the one thing that you have as an advantage is scarcity. You can only produce so much. You know, you've got some beautiful paintings on, on the easel behind there and on the wall. And that one on the wall behind you, the, the one with the, with the circle behind her. You know, I know I can't see the depth of it, but I know you spent a lot of time producing that painting. Right. A lot of time and care went into that. You don't want to be in a situation where you're having to crank out 30, 40, 50, 70 paintings a year. Uh, and, you know, yes, you're getting rich, but, you know, there's more to life than getting rich. It'd just be nice to have enough money, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned. But I think the idea is keep your quality high. And because there's only so many people who can do quality, that creates scarcity. Now, the good news is when I started Fine Art Connoisseur, um, there, I, that I was aware of, remember this is almost pre-internet, I didn't know about things that existed. I mean, you know, there was uh, Florence Academy and Jacob Collins and Art Students League and maybe a couple of other things. But today, there's 50 or 100 ARC-approved ateliers mm -hmm. because students uh, become teachers who start their own ateliers. And then now their students are going to become teachers and start their own ateliers. And so now, you know, it was Warhol who said the art world will change when a hundred people, a hundred young people start painting academic realism. Or he didn't use those words, but painting in realistic ways. He said the world will move back to that. And so now we have 2,500, 3,000 people in their twenties and thirties who have learned academic realism and they're going to touch and spread to the world. So you're going to have a much bigger reach. So, but, but it's all about education. You know, we, we have to understand that there's um, the world of uh, control in the art world by a certain two or three people uh, is going to, is still going to continue, but it's going to be influenced less and less because we, we now have the democracy of the internet. People can discover mm -hmm. uh, different things that they love. And no longer will we have to have somebody telling us, this is good. And, and you know, you got consumers who say, well, I don't understand why it's good. Oh, trust me, I'm a dealer. I know this. This is good. No, you're going to be able to go, I can tell that that's good. I can tell that the drawing is good. I can tell that the, the layering and the skin and the, you know, the form and everything is good. Mm -hmm. So that's what's going to make a big difference. Yeah, that's actually the reason why I, I'm doing these videos and I, you know, keep my YouTube channel because I want to have educational content for everyone. You know, I appreciate it very much that you're here today because I'm going to, edit the video and put it up and it's going to be live forever and ever. Well, I think, you know, when I, I'll tell you quickly a story cause I know you got, you're out of time. Um, I moved into this neighborhood and I got to know the lady next to me and she's a young lady. And she, she said, Oh, I have my MFA in, in art from the university of Texas. I'm in Austin. And uh, I was up there doing, I was studying under Graydon Parish at the time and I was up there doing more academic things and uh, she said, how do you do that? I said, you have an MFA in art. You should tell me. And she said, no, we, I did collage for four years. And she said, yeah. I wanted to do this kind of thing. And they told me it wasn't possible. They didn't have any way to teach me. Mm -hmm. And so people who are looking for this have to know where to look. And of course, now the internet, your, your discovery is so much easier because of all these people posting images and things. But it wasn't easy for her. And then I introduced her to Graydon and she studied under Graydon. And so uh, we just have to keep telling people how to find it and explaining what it is. And, and I hear from parents, it's like, how do I get my kid to learn this? Or how do how, you know, what do I do for my kid? Or 
our students who are like, where do I go? They're still, you know, they still up, they look up art school and they're, and they're not necessarily finding the ateliers and the academies mm -hmm. that are teaching this. And so we have to look for ways to spread this and to be visible and to make sure that there's, you know, people like you getting the right keywords in your, and, mm -hmm. you know, so that you know what people are searching for in the articles we all write and the things that we put out there so that people can discover this. Because if they discover it and we get, instead of 2,500 students, we get 5,000 and then 15,000 and 50,000, you know, it's going to change the world. And that will raise the tide of all the ships, you know, the, the masters that were at the top are going to go up. The ones below them are going to go up and, you know, yeah, there's going to be younger people nipping at your heels all the time, but that's going to make you better. Mm -hmm. I just recently did a self portrait. I'll send you and, and uh, I think self portraits are enormously important for artists to do because we want to document them. You know, a lot of people don't do them anymore. And it, first off, it's a free model, but secondly, you need to you need to document yourself throughout history because self portraits end up in museums, but photographs don't. Mm -hmm. uh, they might, but um, you know, David LaFell does a self portrait at least once a year, and I think it's a great practice. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it very much. It, it's a very good interview. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate doing it. I hope that you guys will follow me on Instagram at Eric Rhodes. Okay. R H O A D S no E. Mm -hmm. And uh, check out realism.today. I think you'd like that. Um, we've got bunches. We've got a Realism Today newsletter, Fine Art uh, Today newsletter, Fine Art Connoisseur, a lot of other things that you would enjoy. Thank you so much. And I'll thank talk you. to you later. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for watching this video. If you find this uh, video helpful, please feel free to like, share, and comment. And I'll see you in my next video. Take care. Bye-bye.